This podcast is brought to you by JCK Las Vegas, the premier destination to discover what's new and next in the jewelry market. Join as the jewelry industry comes together at the Sands Expo on the Venetian, May 31st through June 3rd. Visit jcklasvegas2019.com slash podcast to register today. Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Emily Veseland will talk about the latest news, jewelry at the Oscars, and trends on the fashion runways, also a weird story of the week. Then, Rob will interview Ben Janowski, founder of Janos Consultants, about the state of the jewelry retail industry and lab-grown diamonds. Hi, this is uh, Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online, and I'm with my co-host, Miss Emily Vesselin. Yes. How are you? Good, good. You want to give your title? I am Emily Vesselin, senior editor and social media director for JCK. The Oscars were last week. Yes. Would you say that from a, a fashion point of view... For jewelry, that's like the most important showcase, the Oscars. Yes, the Oscars is really the Super Bowl for fine jewelry and for fine jewelry brands. So we always really pay close attention to the brands that the stylists pick and that the celebrities wear. And that this year was dazzling. Is there some years that are better than others? Like, how would you compare this year to prior years? We are definitely in kind of a maximalism period in jewelry, trend-wise. This season has just been a flood of incredible gems and jewels on the red carpets. Though I would say actually the Globes were a little blingier. The Oscars were definitely up there. And there was kind of that one, as you know, the one gem to rule them all. Yes. And it was what? Dun, 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 dun. Lady Gaga. And she was also big at uh, the Globes, I believe. She was, yeah. Lady Gaga wore the 128.54 carat yellow Tiffany diamond. Tiffany set the Tiffany diamond into a new necklace design for Lady Gaga, and it was glorious and gorgeous. And Melissa Bernardo in our office received the press release first, and she writes in all caps to me, it's the Tiffany diamond. What's the the historical significance of that particular diamond? It's considered to be one of the finest yellow diamonds ever unearthed. I I would say that Tiffany is getting their money worth from Lady Gaga or Lady Gaga is getting her money worth from Tiffany. It's, it seems to be working out very well for both of them. It's a very fruitful relationship, right? The last person to wear that diamond was Audrey Hepburn. Right. So that's what made it historic because it's not like, oh, every 10 years they roll it out and you know Susan Sarandon had it on a decade ago and Nicole Kidman had it on. no. It really is, you know, has only made three showings, I believe. There was a showing where somebody, uh, it was a wife or somebody wore it initially, but then it was Audrey Hepburn for promotional photos for Breakfast at Tiffany's. And then this third time is Lady Gaga. So it was very, it was very historic. It was a big, big jewelry moment. And where did she wear it? They, They both wore it in a necklace. And it's something you can see instantly. It makes an instant impression. Absolutely. Because it was really shocking that it would be that diamond that they never roll out, you know, that we kind of thought would be in a museum forever and never be set again. And she also wore Tiffany, I believe they were new, yellow and colorless diamond drop earrings that were spectacular. They were, I think, mostly baguettes, maybe a couple of squares in there, but it was just all in all sort of 
this dazzling, sparkling, awesome moment. But there were a lot of brands that had a great showing. We did a little roundup story where the staff was picking their favorites. Julia Roberts, who did that surprise best picture appearance on the Oscars, she was in the Cindy Chow earrings and a bracelet. And what was interesting about that look was that it was it was very organic feeling, sort of natural looking, but the earrings were gold, yellow gold. And the bracelet was, I believe it was white gold. I don't think it was platinum, but yeah, it was 18 karat yellow gold. And then white gold, her stylist Elizabeth Stewart mix and matched uh, the two medals. And it was a cool, dramatic, and gorgeous look. Mm-hmm. Randy Malofsky, the JCK jewelry director, chose Charlize thereon in Bulgari. And Charlize wore these really incredible high jewelry necklaces that are classic to Bulgari. And she wore them over her dress, which was very new and interesting. And then uh, Rima, our jewelry editor at JCK, she chose Spike Lee, who I'm going to butcher this guy's name. I always do, but he's the cameo guy. He's Amadeo Scognamiglio. He created this, the um, you know, the prince symbol. Right. Yes. Spike Lee had the jeweler create this really beautiful pendant um, set with an opal, a 17 karat opal. And in, in, in the little middle. In the little middle round. The top part. Exactly. But what was really sort of neat and cool because Spike won was that he also wore the, the knuckle rings from the 1989 Do the Right Thing movie, Whoa. which I'm going to read this here because I'm not as familiar with that movie, but they were worn by Bill Nunn's character, Radio Raheem. So one said love and one said hate. Tale of good and evil. Hate. It was with this hand that Cain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. And they're just very cool. And could you see it when he was on stage? Could you see all this jewelry? You could see it, but he made a point to hold out his hands to show the rings on the red carpet. And then he did. Like, even when he had, I saw one shot where he had the Oscar in one hand and the prince symbol up in the other. So that was really neat. I really liked, my pick was Amanda Stenberg, young actress, super talented, super gorgeous, and she was in Forever Mark. And she was one of the few A-listers to show up in yellow gold. She had these kind of, these really gorgeous drop earrings that that included yellow gold and diamonds. And then she had this really neat long necklace that had a little pendant that was kind of a teardrop shape that had diamond in it, but it was kind of a delicate look for the evening, which the evening was dominated by these bold, chunky, thick, voluminous pieces. So I liked that she had a lot of delicate jewelry on because it made, you know, it made an impact, even though it was they were thin and delicate and sort of thin chained pieces, but they, you know, were not lacking in impact. So I thought that was a great look for her. Right. And then Kristen Young, who's a JCK contributor, she chose Rachel Weiss in Cartier, and Rachel Weiss did a really cool thing. They took these Cartier, very well-known diamond brooches that are branches with leaves, and they fashioned, I believe it was two of them together to make this makeshift headband. And against her dark hair, it just looked so pretty, so beautiful. Um, And she wore a Givenchy dress that had this latex top. It was a bright red latex top. So I thought that the juxtaposition of the romantic natural diamond headband with the latex was an interesting and kind of eye-popping red carpet look. You said that 
you feel that the styles were a little bolder this year than past, that there was very blingy. And is there anything that you think that's a reaction to or that something like a societal kind of mindset that people decided, okay, I'm going to have very blingy kind of um, jewelry this year? I think that this is just a pendulum swing from all the delicate kind of daily gold that we've been seeing for the better part of a decade now. It's really been about jewelry you can sleep in, subtlety, you know, fine jewelry that's sort of, you know, wafer thin and gorgeous little stacking rings and stacking bands. And I feel like it's just sort of that swing back to things that are more substantial, that have more volume. Um, You and I have talked about sort of the return of the chain as as a trend that is just huge. I mean, it hasn't even crested yet, but we we saw it all over the Oscar red carpet. We saw it at Fashion Week's chunky, big, thick chain as a statement. And it's like, it's very statement making. And I think that, like I said, it's just sort of a natural swing back to something really different and boldness. We haven't been there for a while. Right. You know, it used to be like the Oscars. I've written about this a couple of times. The Oscars, it used to be like you had one, one amazing jewel that you would put on a celebrity and that would be it. The rest of it would be very light, very minimal in terms of adornment or nothing. You know, it would be like your great earring, your great necklace, your great bracelet, your great ring. But now stylists are just, they're so creative and they're they're putting together such cool looks that include several big, you know, large scale pieces. And I think that, hello, maximalism, we're just back to it. And it's awesome. I love it. Good. Do you think that Spike Lee wearing that jewelry in such a out there way will probably induce maybe more men to start wearing jewelry like him? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, I think that would be amazing. I think that, you know what, even more than Spike Lee, I will say that we recently ran a story on um, Billy Porter, the actors Billy Porter and Chadwick Boseman from Black Panther, who showed up on various red carpets this season wearing brooches, like floral brooches. And I think probably more than floral. I'm not exactly sure what the motifs completely were, but it was such a neat look and something so different for men that I feel like we may be moving into a good period for men's jewelry where it's not considered, you know, maybe tacky or over the top or gauche to wear, especially gems, diamonds. So maybe we are uh, transcending that. Maybe. What do you think? (laughs) Uh, Not for me personally, but yes. (laughs) Fashion Week, was there anything different there? Was that similar? It was similar, and it, and, it, and it pushed things a little bit forward, too. I'll just give you some of the, the key trends that were going on there. Again, big chains, voluminous chains. Oscar de la Renta did really pretty kind of open, big gold chains that attached things like hearts and gems, slices of gem. Jeremy Scott did these blacked-out kind of punky chains. IDM did these huge gold chokers and uh, Simon Miller from LA, they had these exaggeratedly big plastic, I believe they were plastic, I could be wrong, but they were plastic looking kind of colorful chains. And then Tom Ford didn't do jewelry per se, but he did create these dresses that had big curb chain 
elements to them. So it was slashes kind of across the clavicles that connected the two sides of the dresses, but it was metal. I'm not sure how you clean a dress like that, but that's what it was. And it was metal curb chain that went across in different strands. And for his closing look, which is very notable, he collaborated with Michael Schmidt Studio. Michael Schmidt is just a legend, kind of an entertainment jewelry and dressing. He created that, remember that famous Tina Turner mesh short dress that she always wore kind of in the 80s. It was like a chain mail silver. He created that. He's created tons of sort of metal meshes, his specialty. And he's created looks for Madonna, Dita Von Teese, Lady Gaga. And he collaborated with Tom Ford for that final look. And it was, I believe it was two, maybe three, huge curb chains that came across that mesh dress. It was dazzling. It was so, it was beautiful. And so that, so big chain was big. And then we're still seeing you know, many seasons now we've been seeing this big gold earrings. So hoops, but also kind of big amorphous hoops where they're sort of crinkled and artfully crumpled. Derek Lamb had big gold hoops. Carolina Herrera had big earrings that kind of had these big gold spheres at the bottom. Ula Johnson had Moroccan looking fringy gold big earrings. And so that was a big look. And that is a look that is super primed, ready set go for jewelry retailers and has been for a while. Now, obviously, the Oscars and Fashion Week are very different kind of forums. But do you think that one influences the other? Do you see, especially since they come so close together, do you do you notice that that sometimes what people wear in Oscars influences Fashion Week and kind of vice versa? Well, it'd be vice versa because the weeks come first I mean, right. not all that you don't get all the way through sort of fashion month, but the weeks come first. And then you do see for some of the top celebrities, which I wasn't paying as much attention to apparel this year, but they they definitely like fly, you know, last minute fly looks in from directly off the runway to put on people like Nicole Kidman and Charlize and Lupita, you know, like they those sort of direct from runway looks will definitely pop up at the Oscars. So they they inform me, you know, it's kind of the same community especially when it comes to, you know, the celebrity angle of it. And so the stylists, the top stylists are so connected to these brands, jewelry brands, fashion brands, and the people who run them and the people, you know, they forge these relationships with them. So it's very synergistic. Do you notice that Jewelry Week is playing more of a role in uh, Fashion Week than perhaps it has in the past? I would say for sure. I mean, for sure, you're seeing, like we've been talking about, more jewelry, larger scale jewelry, more creative, more innovative in terms of design. Um, Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're we're in a good moment for jewelry, and I think we're seeing it across the board, which is great. I mean, jewelry retailers right now have so many emerging and current trends to pick and choose from. They just have to figure out which ones are going to connect with their demographic, with their particular clients. But there's no shortage of ideas, no shortage of kind of hot looks. We're in a good spot and they're in a good spot right now if they can seize seize the energy of these trends and, and connect them back to larger society and to the Oscars and to fashion weeks and then present them in real life situations. It's There's the opportunity is, is rich. Great. Oh, also, I wanted to say that pearls, which is surprising to me because I feel like we've been seeing them for a while, but pearls were also all over New York Fashion Week. Well, why do you think that is? Because that seems like a very random thing to kind of come back. Yeah, I don't know. 
know. I mean, they, we've sort of had this like edgy pearl. We've done a ton of stories on the kind of the edgy pearl look, but it continues to stick. Like this is a trend with legs, but now we're seeing less bold geometric with pearl and more amorphous, softer shapes and forms with pearls. And we saw that at Rachel Comey. We saw that at Palmer Harding um, and other shows. And it, it, I mean, it's pretty, it's very feminine, very pretty and very retailable to old and young, kind of everybody. It doesn't have an age, you know, it doesn't have an age cap on it, the pearl look. And then also one more, rhinestone jewels. Hmm. Kind of obviously fake, slightly campy, diamond-looking pieces that were, you know, they, they sort of feel 80s, but I think they originated in the 50s and 60s. My mom had a bunch of this sort of like fake diamond, fake gem jewelry that was just obviously fake, you know, obviously rhinestone. Rhinestone cowboy. Yeah, rhinestone cowboy. Like a rhinestone cowboy. And this is, um, I'm seeing this kind of like creep in. It kind of feels, to me, it feels really cool again. Opening Ceremony, which is a very influential brand and retailer, they had these like big cascading rhinestone earrings and square hoops that were, you know, just big style covered in rhinestone. Rodarte had these kitschy kind of like juvenile looking earrings that I think I wrote was, you know, that kind of borrowed the aesthetics of Claire's Boutiques and like downtown Brooklyn. Like it's sort of this funny, kitschy, campy mix. So we'll see. That might be one that sort of like fizzles but it might be one that soars, so we'll we'll see. Well, the other big story is that Samuel's Jewelers. Let's talk about Samuel's, yeah, Which is like a 125-year-old uh, company, had about 110 stores. It's probably about okay. the fifth largest jeweler in America. It was owned by a company called Jitanjali in India, and okay. uh, Jitanjali had run into certain legal problems. The head yeah. of Jitanjali, Mehul Choksi, is now uh, a fugitive, and I think yes. it's uh, some Caribbean island. Mm. And earlier last year, um, Samuels went Chapter 11. It's pretty amazing. It's the fourth time it went Chapter 11. And it survived all these times. Right? How does and it for, keep surviving? How and, does it keep reviving? And for a long time, it looked like it was going to survive again. But uh, I think eventually the bank run out of patience this time. They were going to make it into a 60-store chain, very pared down. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the thing is, the, the name has some juice, a little juice. It's 125 years old. There were a lot of stores with well-established businesses, and they were hoping that they could still uh, make it work. I mean, it's, it's uh, obviously, as somebody said who used to work at Samuel's, uh, you know, for jewelry retail, a lot of things has to go right. A lot of things have to go right. Yes. You know, the malls are very tough these days. So it was, it was does, always going to yeah. have trouble, but mm-hmm. the fact that its owner basically doesn't exist anymore, that was an extra heap of trouble, I guess. Oof. So it was part of this whole, the whole um, Nirav Modi. Uh, yes. Nirav Modi is Choksi's uh, nephew. So they both kind of got in legal trouble at the same oh, time. Oh, is that right? I did not yes. realize that. So, okay. And now they're both kind of uh, hiding from the authorities. Uh, one of the interesting oh. things was that they actually brought in an examiner okay. to examine the books. So they had this guy who was like a big shot at the SEC. And okay. uh, he found a lot of interesting things. Like, for example, the the leading vendor that they had was yep. this company called Exclusive Design Direct. So what, what basically happened was a lot of the vendors 
that Samuels used were allegedly related to Choxy. So a lot of it was just them shifting resources between these companies. Yeah. So uh, the biggest vendor, according to the examiner, and I've actually looked up the addresses, it, it seems to pan out, Exclusive Design Direct was in reality a one person front company run by a psychologist's office no. in Sterling Heights, Michigan. No. Uh, That's not even a good criminal Allegedly, maneuver. Allegedly criminal. Allegedly um, criminal, yes. right. Um, wow. What does this say? What do you think that this implosion says about where the chain jewelry retail game is now? Like, Or what effects is, it, is this going to have? Aside from the obvious, which is horrible layoffs and yeah, the I mean, shrinking of, of the industry. Jobs. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a company that was doing over $100 million in business a year. So, you know, that, that goes away from the jewelry business. You know, it's hard to get that back, right? Right. So I think it's, it's not good. I mean, you, you hope eventually that stronger businesses will come in and take its place. We'll but $100 million in business is, is, is significant, and it's not something necessarily that the industry can afford to lose. So um, right. it's, it's, you know, these things are, are very tragic. I mean, you know, 125 year legacy and like, you know, uh, it used to be Barry's and, and, you know, people like Terry Berman were involved. So it was a, it, it was a company that at one point a was, big a, loss. Was, was a formidable company. I don't know if it's necessarily one now, but it's something that I think is just bad to see. And, and, you know, it also hurts jewelers because you have these going out of business sales and you have all this stuff being sold for cheap. And it hurts right. their ability to make margins because they're dealing with these guys who sell very cheap jewelry yep. for going out of business sales. And, oh. and, you know, and just the perception of, you know, when we talk about some of these things with the examiner and with the fact that Tangeli is in all this legal trouble, it, it, yeah. it, it's not good for the industry as far as financing, as far as not necessarily public perception, because I don't think this has gotten a lot of play, but kind of as, consumer as, but, play, right? But, yeah. but you know, but as far as government kind of perception, it play, causes right, people yeah. to look at the industry and say, what's going on here? Why are all these, why are we having all these companies funneling money and back in between each other and shell companies? So it's, it's right. It's, a huge retailer revealed as, you know, allegedly, Shady is terrible, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not that's, good. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, it that was owned no by a, a shady company. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't yeah. mean you know there's some very decent people there, and there's people. I mean, I know that the the fact that there are a lot of executives there really fought to keep this thing open because they wanted wow. to preserve the jobs and they wanted to preserve the name and the company and all this stuff. But but in the end of the day, I think there was just so much going against them they weren't able to. So. That was the end. There you go. It's a shame. It's tragic. Yes. We'll do a quick weird story of the week. Weird story of the week. Yeah, we'll do it quickly. This is from New York Newsday and uh, WPIX Channel 11 here in New York. A dental assistant accused of stealing thousands of dollars of jewelry from two sedated patients (gasps) at a Long Island office was arrested and charged with larceny and other crimes. Authorities said. What? So break it down. Okay. Court documents state that the hygienist removed the patient's jewelry, a religious icon gold link necklace, and a gold wedding band with six diamonds while the patients were sedated with nitrous oxide. What is even happening? <laughs> yeah, it's wild, huh? Police are investigating if there are other victims. Chief Stuart Cameron said at a news conference, 
Other patients who were also moderately sedated, uh, meaning they were probably somewhat awake or lightly asleep during the procedures, may not remember or realize their belongings were missing. And this is the, the, the stolen jewelry was found at local pawn shops. Yeah. And, and this is the key course. quote from the police chief. Okay. Medical professionals are given a large amount of trust by their patients, and this individual violated that trust. This is the best part. <laughs> Although she was using laughing gas, this is no laughing matter. <laughs> that oh, was, it uh, isn't. I mean, I, I, don't even, I don't even love to laugh at this because it is so awful. But what are you, I mean, also... Yeah. My big question is the people wake up, how long does it take for them to realize? Because they're out of it a little bit. Right. After you get dental work, you're a little out of it. How long does it take them to realize that they're missing their beloved necklace or ring? I mean, the audacity. I, I think it probably took them a little bit, you know, maybe it took later them that a little day. Bit. And they were like, well, did I remember? Did I have it? You know, because it's oh. obviously, obviously not something you expect. Right. So you're not, you're not waking up and clutching your neck to see that your necklace right, is Right, right. You you're saying, okay, is. yeah, I'm, I get out of there. It was horrible and unpleasant. I'm going home, you know? I'm going to work or I'm going, going home. To... And then, yeah, that night, right? Right. You're getting ready for bed or whatnot. And, and you're suddenly like, you're... You where, go where's to my hygiene? jewelry? <laughs> Somebody, the, the dental hygienist stole it. It is no laughing matter. Yes. <laughs> Here with me in the studio is the legendary Mr. Ben Janowski, president of Janos Consultants and a longtime friend of JCK and a longtime friend of the jewelry industry. And he's here to talk about new trends in diamonds and jewelry. Welcome, Ben. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. One of the things we've talked about over the years, which is now the hot topic in the industry, is, of course, lab-grown diamonds, man-made diamonds, and you were one of the first people, and I actually agreed with you, who said, this is something that's going to be huge. Because I remember, you know, at first people would always compare it to CZ and to moissanite. And they didn't realize that this was something that at least promoted correctly. And I'm not sure it's still being promoted correctly. But if you promote it in a smart way, this is something that people are going to say, well, this is the same thing just for less. General Electric and Sumitomo started making diamonds, creating diamonds, uh, 60 years ago. Right. A long time ago. With no thought of, of gem quality stones, it was purely industrial. Been around a long time, and there was really probably not much of an incentive to go in that direction for quite a while. But even De Beers, very early on, started to manufacture diamonds, also with industrial in mind, but also knowing that over a period of decades or longer, their minds would play out and they would be out of the diamond business as we knew it. Uh, so it would make great sense after a while to say man-made diamonds, especially as the HP, HT process and CBD came along, the industry would get into man-made diamonds right. uh, because diamonds would be slowly disappearing, not meeting demand anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, people rejected it, though. They said, absolutely not. It's not real. It's not out of the and, ground. And they still reject it. They still reject it. As a matter of fact, just recently, there was this column written from the 
fine color association mm -hmm. in which they basically said, well, De Beers is not taking care of the problem. They've come out with Lightbox and it's cheap diamonds and they're going right. to kill the competition yeah. and they're going to turn it into a low-priced product that's right. never going to compete with fine diamonds. I mean, I was surprised by that because I don't know that anybody could really see where it's going to go. Right. I don't think that, that's what's interesting about it. You Nobody can really have no, I don't think anybody really knows where this is going. No, I mean, you almost can't. One thing is sure, a good part of the American public has no problem with looking at diamonds and saying, here's a natural diamond comes out of the ground right. and it's $10,000, or here's a man-made diamond that looks as well as that one and it's $7,000, and saying, I'll save the money. Yeah. The key difference is that the people that are in heavily invested in maintaining the natural diamond value have bought into, and I say bought into because it's, it's reflective of how I feel, but I bought into the belief that because it came out of the ground, you know, and was made three billion years ago, it gives it value that you can't replicate. And I say, nah, I'm not sure that that's true. You know, I, I think a lump of iron is that old, and you could use that for an example. You know, right. it's, it's not the same. Uh, what does make diamonds of value is that it's really a commitment to someone else. I mean, it's a display of love, of commitment. That has value, mm -hmm. in my view. That has value. And that value, when you think about that, does that value derive from the fact that it came out of the ground? Well, not necessarily. No. It could derive from uh, a fine piece of jewelry. doesn't even have to have any stones in it, for that matter. I don't think it necessarily derives from that. However, it could be communicated to derive from that. You know, if you look at a diamond is forever, yes. well, why that's an interesting slogan is because it can take taken like five ways, that the diamond is old, which makes it forever, but also a diamond stands for forever. Right. As if uh, somebody said to me many years ago, if we can't market a natural product correctly, then that's on us, then shame on us, that's, right? Yes, I, I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is there's an overhang in the natural market right. that constantly erodes its message. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. We can talk about that if you want to, certainly have many aspects of it. Here's, a, I think, a big difference. The traditional structure of the diamond business is such that De Beers created competition amongst their clients. Right. The more competition there is between their clients, the more the price at that level, the middle level, gets driven down because you're competing with people on basically a comparable product. You're not selling anything else. Because of that, there is not a lot of money downstream from De Beers to go and promote and really pr bring across a big message. Now you have the product, the man-made product, that has, for the moment, plenty of margin in it. So marketing it, promoting it, selling it is going to be a, a you know very different story than it was, has been historically. Now when you say De Beers has gotten their site holders to compete with each other, is that from supply of choice, or is that kind of how it's always been? Always been. Right, right, right. I think their their purpose has, uh, certainly for a long time, has been that you get them to compete with each other, and right. that's the way you bring the price down. Mm -hmm. And I, I think one of the issues we're seeing here is that most diamonds aren't differentiated, as we know, and retailers see the lab-grown diamonds as a way to differentiate themselves, that's right? Because right. it's something different. And make more money. And make more money. And also appeal to price-sensitive shoppers because there's no 
more classic sales pitch than I'm going to give you the same thing for less. That's the kind of elemental it's overwhelming sales pitch, no right? Doubt. You know, no that's doubt. that's the basis. Here's the same thing right. and it's cheaper. And whether you agree with that or not is a, another issue, but that's basically the sales pitch. Where where it doesn't work in other products is where there's a strong brand. Right. So, uh, you can you can buy almost any car and it'll get you from point A to point B. Right. But some people spend a lot more money to buy a BMW or a Rolls-Royce. Why? Because the brand means something to mm -hmm. them. You know, that that's uh, gives them status, gives them exposure, whatever. In diamonds, unless you're wearing a very particular piece of diamond jewelry from across the room, you can't tell who made it. Right. You can't tell the brand, no matter who who sold it. So there's a real issue in that kind of product that doesn't exist in other brands. And I, I think what's interesting is, for a long time, when they were advertised, diamonds were a brand, right? Think about how diamond, like all these things, CZ and Moissanite, yes. failed to really get traction. Yes. Because diamond was the brand, right? So now, not only is this kind of a similar brand, but Diamond itself as a brand, Natural Diamond as a brand, has taken a few hits, right? As yep. far as yep. social issues, as far as consumer perception, as far as not, not being advertised. Mm -hmm. So in that way, it's like you had a good brand that's now much weaker for this kind of incumbent to come in. I think that's right. You'll recall that De Beers was not particularly happy when the wrapped diamond list came out. They were not particularly happy with it because anything that moves the product towards commoditization right. is an issue. Uh, they didn't want to starve their site holders. They certainly, a lot of them made a lot of money over the years. They, you know, because you do have those ten sites a year. You know, it's a little bit like a quart of milk in a grocery store. If the store puts a five percent markup on it, but they turn it fifty times a year, they're making some pretty good money on that right, quart right. of milk, right on that space. So, site holders, ten sites a year. I remember so clearly with many uh, many of the uh, site holders how they rush to convert the goods because they've got to move it and sell it before the next site. So they're going 10 times a year. They're rotating their money. They're turning the money over in the old days. They didn't want the site holders to uh, starve. They did want them to make money, and a lot of them did make money. Uh, but as soon as you get into commoditization, you start to remove any other differentiation that an individual uh, diamond company can present to a, to a retailer. And especially as it went on from there, it went on to the grading systems, and then it went on to cut grade, and then went on to GAA, GAA grading reports, all the grading reports. So you've turned it into a paper product. Right. And, and that's, uh, that really has squeezed more water out of the business. Right. I, I, there are ways you can differentiate it, just people didn't bother. Or they didn't have the money, or they didn't have the resources, or they didn't have the... Didn't have the knowledge. Yeah. Didn't have the ability to figure out how to do that. But but what's interesting is that uh, I see this, and you know I look at a lot of these lab-grown websites and brands and stuff like that. I see the very same thing happening with lab-grown, is that there's very, very few even efforts to start any kind of brand, the the idea there, everybody's hoping that the idea that it's lab grown is differentiation enough, which it is for the time being. But I don't know in the long term, eventually you're going to have the same kind of price comparisons. I think by the end of the year, we'll definitely see a bunch of major players get into this business. 
at that point, you know, how do you differentiate a one-carat lab-grown? It's You're in the same kind of stuck position as you are with a one-carat natural. I think that's exactly right. The problem really is maybe worse than that because the problem is well, you've got a message to, to convey now, which is price differentiation, no mm -hmm. question about that. You also have relatively little fear of being swamped because for the moment, I'm, I would imagine the demand is greater than the supply. People don't have a problem not only moving the product, but also holding the margin. What happens when productions skyrocket and now you can get as much as you want whenever you want and the price drops? When you have large manufacturing of man-made diamonds, if it's controlled, if the manufacturing ends up in the hands of two or three people, prices will hold. If it ends up in the hands of 300 people, manufacturing of many companies, then the potential for the price to drop to dangerously low level goes very high. Right. And let's not forget that's the reason why this industry was controlled by a cartel for so many years, because that was how it made economic sense, was to limit the supply and to keep the price up. Uh, and especially when the supply coming out of the ground was well above what right, with the supply, yeah. What uh, what demand was there? Demand, yeah. And you recall that around two thousand, De Beers really began to back off right. from managing stocks. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the production was starting to evaporate, mm -hmm. and they saw that demand was going to exceed supply, mm -hmm. and so you start to back off from it. Uh, especially since for years, especially in the low-end product, the low-end diamond grades, they were buying stuff on which they made no money, right. literally no money. They would dispose of it any way they could, but they did it to control the industry. So they gave up on that, especially when Argyle, you know, in Australia, walked away from the market. Right. That would that stock. At a certain point, if you're just putting diamonds on a stockpile and you're paying money to, to mine... You're going to go bust, you right? Because you, no, you have no money coming out. That's and you're right. You're just spending money. And I think that's the big risk for man-made diamonds is that you have people like, apparently you can buy these machines on Alibaba if you want, you these, these diamond machines. And that you have people, like I was talking to somebody in the man-made business and he was like, well, we're, we're trying to make sure that nobody in China gets our intellectual property so they'll never figure out how to make the bigger diamonds. And, and I was thinking, you know, if that's your hope, <laughs> you're, you have, that's a, that's, you're in trouble because that's, they're going to find out somehow. Technology is going to move along and you're not going to stop that. So, so, and what do you think Lightbox plays in all this? It, to me, it seems like it's been a bit of a backfire because I think they, they, they seem to have done it to kind of put a damper on the market to say, to set a price level. And they, they clearly haven't done that. And, in, and they've done, which is probably the, the, probably what they feared, which is that they've quote unquote legitimized it. I mean, it was always a legitimate product, but it's definitely helped sales in the market. Well, I think they had to do it. Uh, I, I think the beers was in a position in which in looking ahead and the beers, if anything, never looked short term. And they said, we're gonna run out of diamonds. As you know, they've already been closing mines and you know, shifting what they're doing considerably. But their production is gonna go down and they know that the mines will run out, whether it takes five years, 10 years, or 20 years, it's right. gonna run out. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? You've got Forevermark, which is their brand. You've got the beer stores, which is their outlets. How about now the jewelry side? They don't have the jewelry side, that's one thing. 
So what business do they want to be in? What business are they going to end up in 20 years from now other than just saying, let's shut the lights and go home. My, my diamond mining business is finished. It's over. That's not an option. Right. So they say, well, look what's coming. We have man-made diamond. We, they themselves have developed it. They know how to do it. You know, they've developed it in colors and whatever. So they're in a position where they say, we need to be in that business. And everybody in this industry for years has been saying that point, at some point, the beers is going to be in a man-made diamond. But they, that's not a new thought. But their problem is bigger than that because they can't come into it late. If they came into it, say, in five or 10 years from now, that, that part of the business would be owned by other companies. Too big, too well-established, too well-entrenched for them to suddenly take it over. So they had to jump. They had to jump and get into it early so that they can build a reputation, build a brand, and hopefully push the other guys out of business. So I don't think they had a choice. You know, it's possible. I think that the beers executives are, are they hear all the stuff about self-cannibalization. I mean, all the kind of like Harvard Business School stuff that you have to cannibalize yourself because otherwise somebody else is going to do it. So I think that's definitely, that kind of thinking definitely plays a role. And from what I understand, it's not, there was not a unanimity as far as the beers. I think some people were against it. Some people still think it was a mistake. So if you look at sometimes they'll have these De Beers events and they don't necessarily invite Lightbox because Lightbox is kind of like the the stepchild. <laughs> I mean, do you think they underestimated the impact that they would have when they jumped into it? Because that's what it seems to me that I think they thought it would all be for the downside as far as the $800 carrot and it's going to drive the prices down. But the fact that it it gave every company in this industry say, okay, let's get into this. This is the future that's huge in a, in a way. It's a it's a, a psychological barrier that's that's kind of fallen. I don't think that there is any way that they didn't realize that that was yeah. a risk. I don't mm -hmm. think there's any way they didn't know that. I'm sure they did. And a good indicator of that indicator of that is the is the big advertising splash they came out with when they first opened it up. I mean, they didn't hold anything back. Uh, that indicates that this was not a sneak attack. This was a full bore attack, you know, and, and they did it because they well understood the potential that man-made diamonds has in terms of impacting their business and, and, and impacting, obviously, the business of all their clients. So I don't think they missed it. One of the things I've noticed is that, in a way, lab-grown over the last year has gotten so big and has become so talked about it's like, uh, remember they talked about the Iraq war it was a catastrophic success, that it kind of happened too quickly and they had no plan how to deal with the aftermath. What's next? Right, right, what's next? Right. So when I see all these companies come in with non-differentiated product that's going to be price compared, and right now it's all based on Rappaport, but eventually it'll probably find its own level, which is probably a little bit detached from the natural, and you wonder, is the demand there? And that's, you know, beyond the technical issues of like people in China starting to, to manufacture these things. What happened at the beginning of the automobile business? The United States had hundreds of manufacturers. Some of them figured out what to do and how to, how to advance and others didn't. If you can't deliver a good message to the public, you're, you're probably going to fail. Yeah. Uh, and that it's going to be that because the product now is not what's driving the business. It's everything else that's going to drive that business. And it's going to be driven by the fact that jewelry as a product is not going away. It's, the, the public is going to continue to want it and continue to want to buy it. 
It's a question of who is going to satisfy that demand and how are they going to satisfy that demand. Final thoughts for the jewelry industry? Here's, um, here's a great line that okay. I picked up from someplace. Opportunities will abound as old operations fossilize and fail. Mm. That's where I, it's I going. feel like I'm fossilizing and failing. <laughs> Not quite. No. Yeah, there you go. No, no, no. You, you, know, you do a great job. No, thank uh, you. You do a great yeah, job. I was, I was intrigued. <laughs> do you want to plug your website, your blog? Sure. You, yeah, the blog is uh, janosconsultants.blogspot.com. The main site is Janos. Janos Consultants. And that's J-N-A-O-S. J-A-N-O-S. I really, really thank you for coming down well, today. Thank you. Thank you Take very care. much. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor and engineer is Levi Sharp. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.